Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. I'm Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness and Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou. Ah, man. Welcome back. This is the second pod of 2020, something we planned on, so I'm really excited. Yeah, I know. I'm glad we are uh, sticking with our New Year's resolution. Unlike, uh, you know, most of the time when I fail by week two, uh, we've already made it into week three of January. So that's a positive note. Um, But on more somber news... Right. Uh, earlier today, uh, we and the rest of the world found out that uh, about the passing of Kobe Bean Bryant and his daughter Gigi Bryant uh, in a tragic uh, helicopter crash uh, in the Los Angeles area this morning. Um, and so, you know, I haven't had a lot of time to process it um, and thinking about it in the big picture, but I do think we should spend a little bit of time acknowledging what Kobe means kind of historically, like what's his historical significance to, to not just the game of basketball, but to broader sports in general. Right, man, this, this honestly hit me like a ton of bricks um, to, to be clear. People that know me, I'm a, I'm a big uh, Dominique fan. I'm a LeBron fan, which means you got you can't be a, a Kobe stand, right? Um, so you critique him at 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 all times, but then you appreciate um his skill on the basketball court, right? And then as a as a dad who who plays sports with his kids and and works out with his kids, like I was I was at the gym when I when I saw my phone with my oldest daughter. She's turning twelve, and you know we we're gonna work out, and and my plan was to secretly sneak in some basketball i promised her we would just do like the elliptical and work out maybe some jumping and i was going to get a medicine ball and we're going to you know work on her shot because I, I need to get her rotation down um get her stronger and 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 that's you know that's why it kind of hit me because kobe was at that stage in his life right he was he was building something not only for Gigi but but for for my daughter too right like and 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 you i don't know if mm-hmm. you've seen these pictures there's these uh, they were heading to a tournament at his facility, and his facility was, was very welcoming to to young women who are playing basketball, and it's a full of of of, of young girls, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who's Kobe's befriended? Who's Kobe helped along the way? So there's tons of pictures. I know people whose daughters played against Kobe, met Kobe, um, and that's where he was in his life. Um, historically, right? He's and I tweeted it before, right? He's a gift from the gods. He's, he's a, a Mount Rushmore type athlete, a once in a generation type athlete. And for us, like we grew up with him. So Kobe and I are the same, we're the same age, right? We're the same class. Clearly he, he was better than me, but like he, as, <laughs> as, I, as I tweeted before, like you, like who, who wouldn't want Tyra Banks singing their name in the video? Like he going to prom with Brady, winning the slam dunk contest, right? Everything you dreamed of, that you thought you were going to be, you know, watching Mike or watching Dominique, he became right. Um, and then as we was talking in pre, he's just Renaissance man, right. Um, whatever his SAT was 1300 SAT, he's speaking Italian. And I say that because he was different, right. He was like, 
a Grant Hill type player in an era where it's moving towards, uh, geez, how do I put this? How, how it's moving towards an AI era, right? Where the NBA is trying to sell something different. He was different in the sense that he's a guard coming out of high school into college, where the previous players like Kevin Garnett are, are 6'11", right? And, and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just this brashness, this confidence that he had, um, that allows him to do that and then opens the door for others. Now, some don't make it. Um, some, some aren't as great, but then, you know, guy like LeBron, like that door opens for him and, and he, you know, he jumps through it. Um, and I think Kobe's legacy too, is as we talked about before that Mamba mentality, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever that means, like, cause it's not for everybody, but just this idea that you're going to be the best at what you want to be. Um, is something that you stress all the time um, to to your kids, to maybe your students, where you're trying to pump them up, trying to get them excited for the for a test they don't want to take, um, right? Um, so I think that's his legacy. And then you know, there's obviously the complicated stuff. There's the the rape charge in Denver. There's the mm-hmm. the homophobic slur to the referee. And I think the beauty about Bryant at this stage in his life was that he was building something different, right? He, I yeah. think he's still, it's so close to this. I don't want to say anything. He still needs to, there was still something about Denver that never sat well. Um, but there was also something about his life that you see like this, like he, you know, he was moving to something different and it just felt like that's where he was going. So that's why it hits hard. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, like like you said, I think there's a, you know, historically, like you said, he's he's the, he's the apex of the high school to pro guys, right? Even with Kevin Garnett in that, in that cohort, right? That's, you know, Kobe is, you know, until the other night was the third leading scorer in the NBA, right? Um, I, you know, he's, he's slightly younger than me. And I remember watching in my first year of grad school, him in the playoffs, Lakers, and Kobe, you know, missed that shot and air ball for that three to win the game, right? You remember that? It's like yeah, game it's seven. Yeah, yeah. I, I, right. I remind my kid all the time she shoots the air ball, she gets mad. It's like Kobe airballed and he lost the game. So don't worry about it. And, you know, I think that there's a thing, there's something to be said about, you know, that you tell your kids and that you tell your students. And, and, and when I worked at Dartmouth, I worked with a lot of student athletes. And I used to always tell them, I was like, look, you know, sometimes you have to put the work in in the dark. Right. Like, that's the thing. Right. And and, and I think that's what Kobe, Kobe was the person that like he was, you know, he was concerned with the results. He wanted championships. He wanted to win. But for him, it was about the, the work. Like that was a, the byproduct of the work that he put in. And that became kind of. Uh, encapsulated as the Mamba mentality, right? Um, and I think there's something to be said about that. I do think that, like you said, this thing of the 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 uh, rape charge in Denver, I think that was that has never been. I think even the media has kind of um, never, you know, fully taken Kobe to task, and really, not, you know, in many ways, it's just kind of been erased from his legacy in some ways. Um, but if you if you're a fan of basketball, just in the kind of the purest sense of the word, um, you know, I you know, I think we're both like of the right age to be to be blessed to be like, man, you know, we're old enough to have seen Kareem, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. Better say Dominique Dr. Wilkins. Dominique Dominique Wilkins. Okay. Dominique Wilkins, Dr. J, um, Michael Jordan, Kobe, Shaq. 
Dwayne Wade, LeBron, like that's all in your right. lifetime. Right? right. You know what I mean? Like, and, 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 um, and so, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a sad day for the sports world. It's a sad day for basketball. It's a sad day for, for, for us fathers trying to figure out how to manage all the things that we have to do and, and balance that and pour it into our kids. And I thought he was, I thought that was, that was the, the, the direction that I thought his, work was leading into right like he was really going to show fatherhood in this new and interesting light because like he said in the in the piece that won him an oscar right like he wanted to be more than an athlete right and and it wasn't like a more than an athlete like in the business sense right like it wasn't in the magic johnson i want to have you know own all these different businesses it wasn't jordan like i want to own the team it was something i think it was something very kind of um you know, it was something beyond the kind of normal lanes that we see professional athletes, successful professional athletes who transition to retirement, that he was looking for something different. And I thought that um, he was really trying to explore some of those things. And, and some of that was through his daughter and at work in, in women's basketball as a as an avid supporter of the game. And, um, you know, as probably the most avid supporter of any of the legends Right. Of, of the NBA. Right. Right. Like, there, you know, like there's no, right. like ever, like I don't ever recall, you know, like, and, and this is probably unfair to Michael Jordan, but like him or magic, um, you know, magic's, you know, is involved with the sparks, but I don't remember Michael Jordan really advocating for women's basketball. Right. right? In the same way that Kobe has, well, he's, you know? coaching. So, he's, he's, he's coaching. This is the thing I, I appreciated about it. Now, Granted, he probably shouldn't be the face of the WNBA or something. There's that, like, the whole different thing will always hang hang over him. But, like, he treated them as as real athletes, right? Like, I'm going to build mm-hmm. this academy for you, right? Or, you know, for, for basketball, for volleyball. And then I'm going to treat you like a real athlete. So his team, like, to be on that team, those, you know, Gigi and the other girl that was on the helicopter – they, their practices were two hours a day, five days a week. Like that was like the commitment you had to make. And there was this at the earlier part of, you know, the semester, fall semester in uh, 2019, um, he had that tweet slash Instagram where he was getting on that girl for choosing dance recitals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or yeah. the team. And we, I think we, nobody was mad at him, but we had fun, like, you know, because it's a seriousness. And I think there was something about it where, you know, nobody's really that serious, but he was because he tried, he treated them like legit athletes. Right. And, you know, it's a bit mm-hmm. much to expect that from like 12 or 13 year old, <laughs> right? Um, it, regardless of, you know, gender, but, but it was just, that's his mentality. And he, he understood like, look, I'm going to build, this is how we're going to build this game, this team. And, and for what I heard, you know, for, for, for two years, you know, they would, they would play all their teams, they would get beat. And now they're like, the, they were the top eighth grade team. Um, and you yeah. can see it. His daughter, you know, she has a fadeaway from, from she had a fadeaway from that from a baseline fadeaway that's that most adults can't do, right? Like, like right. that's like totally him making sure she works and that that gift that that we love watching where he's like talking to her on the sidelines and she's making the Kobe lips and it's just like this is what you want, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, take your kids to the game and just just pass down this knowledge. Um, and it just so happened he was doing it with his daughter, um, mm. right? Um, same thing LeBron does with his son. Same thing D uh, Wade does with his sons, right? And he's doing it with right. his daughter, and I think that was that's why it felt different um, there. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, I think that we're going to hear in the next, you know, weeks, months, years, even retrospectives on the kind of importance of, of Kobe. But, you know, we here, I think, when, you know, when we think of him historically in terms of his position in the game, but also what he meant to on the floor uh, and off the floor, I think it's 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 a tremendous loss. And I think that it's anytime someone dies young, you know, 41 is young and um, and in such tragic circumstances with his daughter, um, you know, you know, my heart goes out to his wife and um, and 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 the rest of their family as they try to you know piece this thing back together going forward um yeah you know i will say you know the more than athlete and I, this would be probably a good transition right but you know vanessa and and kobe gave a million dollars to the national african-american museum right like they were donors you know so when we think about like you know the commitment to not just sports stuff but to think about the broader history of african-american life and and supports of uh, we talked about this in the pre pre-show support of kobe support for trayvon martin i wore i can't breathe t-shirts like you know there's a certain kind of political edge that kobe uh, didn't always voice, but you know he he always supported, right? And I think that there's something to be said that he he never wavered the kind of fearlessness that he he showed on the court. He showed uh, regarding kind of issues facing black folks, uh, every, and I think that's that's to be commended, right? To be right. commended no. as well. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, but you know, I think our episode today, we had our, our initial plan we had talked about all weekend was to talk about the Super Bowl. Which is next uh, next Sunday, featuring the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. and um, and you know I'm going to put you on the spot here because okay. you usually put me on the spot. Wow. Yeah, well, you know you're you're a California guy, so I'm just assuming that you're rooting for the San Francisco 49ers. Oh man, who's who's the the quarterback of the Chiefs? Uh, Patrick Mahomes. Have you ever seen Passenger 57? Uh, I have seen that. And what does Wesley Snipes say? Uh, always bet on black. Always bet on black. Phrase. You know, I am the champion of black quarterbacks. I, I think I I own that title. Uh, often imitated, but never duplicated when it comes to that. So the undefeated could have their whole series on the black quarterback, but nobody stands more for the black quarterback than me. So by that alone, I'm going for the Chiefs, right? And they have a black OC. And and just and and this is our our smooth transition to to the history of the Chiefs. Growing up, you know, watching those NFL films, um, I you you got the sense that they were a a modern like a black team, right? Those old films yeah. from the sixties and seventies, and and I would root for them. Uh, you know, the Buck Buchanan's, the Willie Lanier's, um, and so you know, I'm just going. It's not saying nothing against San Francisco, but just just. On GP alone, on on that, on my historical memory, what we know and what we'll break down for you, for for listeners about the '60s, and then a little bit on the Super Bowl, and then talking the enemy and Mahomes. You know, I'm going Chiefs. Now, will they win? I don't know. That that Niners defense up that front four is is nasty. Uh, it's, it's nasty. It's it's very nasty. But I'll also say this: there's that track speed that if you follow me on Twitter, I always knock because they're not clear they're not route runners but that track speed that's that that will get you out of a lot of jams um, yeah you know what i mean that opens up and mahomes is a mission hey. so yeah i'm gonna I'm go i'm gonna go chiefs and i think their defense will be better than expected um so yeah i'll just go chiefs all right so we got the chiefs yeah i you know i think that's a that's an excellent 
way to to lead into this history. I think, you know, one of the underrated things, I think, you know, if you're if you're a diehard football fan, I think one of the things that gets underrated about the the success and the growth of the NFL vis-a-vis baseball in some ways uh it owes a lot to NFL films, right? Mm-hmm. That Steve Sable and the folks out of New Jersey, um they put together these videos um that you could get when you ordered like a new subscription to Sports <laughs> Illustrated, right? Like, you get the right, phone or like, the video. <laughs> right. And you get all the Super Bowl highlights, right? And I remember my dad getting a Sports Illustrated, man, this must have been like 85, 86. And I remember watching that video like all the time, especially like in the week before the Super Bowl, like when there's nothing on, right? Like you're like, oh, let me watch all these Super Bowls. Man, it's like you saw, and that's where I saw the Chiefs, right? You're looking at the Chiefs, you're like, man, they're like, that's a lot of black people because you know them old videos. You like you know, it was a like the game looked different. Right? No, right? no, it did. <laughs> uh, uh, it looked different, right. and um, and so you know, I think that always stuck with me when we think about the Chiefs as as one of these things. This is not knowing any of the history of the AFL and the NFL merger, not knowing any of the history of Lamar Hunt and and what was happening. But you know, this history is super interesting. I think that's where we kind of lead in and introduce thinking about that the Chiefs' history um, it is. It's very much tied to to you know in modern parlance diversifying its team, but really that the battle for talent between the AFL and the NFL uh, in the early 1960s forced teams to really uh, expand opportunities for all uh, football players of all levels, mm-hmm. right? Division two, Division three, HBCUs. And the Chiefs were really the first, one of the first teams to really capitalize on historically black colleges, which is kind of my wheelhouse uh, that I talk about in my book. And, and the key player for them is uh, Lloyd Wells. Lloyd Wells was a sports reporter out of, uh, for the Houston Informer at one point. Uh, and then he began, struck up a relationship uh, with uh, Hank Strand, the head football coach of the, of the Kansas City Chiefs. And, and Stram was like, I need some information on any of these black players, right, from HBCUs. And so Lloyd Wells, who had been writing on them, knew many of them personally, especially in the SWAC, um, was instrumental in helping get. And there's this famous story uh, in the 1960s in which uh, when before the merger uh, of the NFL draft in 66 or 67, um, the, the NFL had a draft and the AFL had a draft and they drafted the same players and whoever offered better contracts. So folks who are familiar with Joe Namath, right, right being the most famous, getting a lot of money to sign with the Jets as, yeah. as opposed to. I ain't got like 400000 which was big money. Yeah, like, pissed which, a lot of people off. Right. Right. Like he had <laughs> played play it now. Yeah. He's making more money. He's making more money than right. everybody. Right. Um and so Lloyd Wells was a close personal friend of Otis Taylor, who who is now in the uh, I think he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Is he in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? I don't we'll have to look that up. up. No, I think no, no, he's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But Otis Taylor is uh, was a star at Prairie View A and M University, and uh, and that was also Lloyd Wells's um, alma mater, as well as he had been a close family friend of Otis Taylor since Otis Taylor was in like middle school. So they were like, oh, and so Taylor gets drafted by the Dallas Cowboys and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs are like feeling like they got him sewn up. Lloyd Wells is like, he's going to sign with you, him and along with this other guy from uh, Historically Black College from Jackson State. They're going to sign. The NFL invites him to a draft party in Fort Worth, Texas, which is basically a way to get them all in a room. These undrafted guys, these guys who have been drafted by the AFL, get them all in a room and try to force them to sign with the NFL teams that drafted them. And 
So Lloyd Wells breaks into the hotel, like telling he tells the people at the front desk that he is a reporter from Ebony Magazine. <laughs> and they let him into the room. He goes into the room. Otis Taylor's like, what you doing here? Like, and he's like, you got to go. And they basically, uh, you know, tie a bedspread and they scurry down the second floor window to a car. And Lloyd Wells basically um, drives him to the airport and they fly to Kansas City that night. And he signs with Kansas City the next day. Right. And because of this, he becomes the first black full time scout uh, in in the Kansas City's organization and in the entire AFL. And this just really opens the door. Right. And so Lloyd Wells has been was instrumental in expanding black college presence. Right. right? That the Chiefs had already drafted Buck Buchanan in 1963 with their first overall pick, who was a dominant player uh, at Grambling State. And this will continue. Right. They will add Willie Lanier, the second round pick. Um, and so when they go to the Super Bowl in 1970, they got like 10 or 11 HBCU there's, guys. There's there's a lot. There's a there's a lot of black players. There's a lot of HBCU uh, guys. And and then when you see like when you see that picture, like I was looking through the Louisiana Weekly, or I was telling somebody, um, I forget, on, on Twitter, he's an artist. Uh, I'm so mad. He probably listens to this. Uh, I'll I'll mention you next time. Um, that. Um, like when you look at those old Ebony magazines, they used to put out mm-hmm. every black person, right? Like every team's black person. And yes. you, when you look at the Chiefs, like it is like, like you're like, damn, that's a this is what modern book as a whole to whole this, page. This whole page, right? <laughs> and and it goes on where there's like four at the bottom at the top of the next page. You know what I mean? Like you're like, this is <laughs> yeah. what the modern NFL team look like. Um so so yeah, no, no, like I was going through the Louisiana Weekly um preparing for this, and it's like a there's a lot of black players on that team. In the sense, we say that a lot. In the sense that it's 1970, right? Um, the the other yeah. thing about Wells, real quick for 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 the listeners, we've, we've we've talked about him before, but he's at the as Derek said at the informer. Um, but what's crazy, right? It's like the Oilers are right there, so why not work for them? But I, they don't, he doesn't have a great relationship with the Oilers. In fact, they don't they can't stand him because he's he spends mm-hmm. their opening seasons in '60 and '61 fighting for integration at that public stadium. Um, so he's, right. he's like, they won't let me in the press box. And so we're just going to, and you know, they won't have black reporters there. And then our fans are segregated. So he's trying to get all the fans, black fans to segregate all the black players to segregate who are coming in town. Right. And you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's meeting them at airports. He's trying to, and nobody does, none, none of the players uh, do this. Right. But the fans do. Right. Um, so that's who he is, right. He's one of these activist writers who make sure that the that the professional football leagues are going to look like they're supposed to look right? Not only for their teams, put in the stats and and just to to show you, like the Oilers in '61 had like four black players, right? And and I think the Raiders had right. like four, and they grow, but it's like it will grow because, as you said, with that draft, that's where the talent is, right? That's where the 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 last untapped talent is is going to be in the HBCUs. And if you're Wells, as you said, you got access to Texas Southern, you got access to Prairie View, you have communications with Southern and Grambling, right? And 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 then we, what we got to do, we got to shout out these books, the whole Otis Taylor thing. He's 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 Texas football, right? So we've mentioned this before. Yeah, Thursday Night Lights. It's a book about black yeah high school football in that area. Um, another book, if you're interested listeners on, on race and sports, um, the AFL, 
It's by Charles K. Ross. It's called Mavericks, Money, and Men, the AFL Black Players and the Evolution of Modern Football. And speaking about the evolution of modern football, one of these um, players that we're talking about, real quick before I mention his name, I got to do a shameless plug. All that Lloyd Wells information about integrating stadiums, <clears throat> we will win the day. But anyway, one of these these modern football players, <laughs> uh, <laughs> black line middle linebacker Willie Lanier, and Willie Lanier yeah. is Derek. Oh, Willie Lanier is like probably one of the finest football players to come out of Morgan State University in Baltimore. Uh, and you know, Willie Lanier is this was dominating in what. Uh, was the CIAA where they were playing at the time. Um, he was like two-time All-American. Uh, in 1966, Morgan State uh, played in Florida in the integrated game in Tangerine Bowl, which was the first HBCU team to play. Ironically, it's not FAMU, but it's Morgan State as part of these um, – but the the what would become one double A bowl coalitions that they created uh, in the mid '60s to try to keep black colleges from joining the NAIA, which is in my book, shameless plug, uh, blood, sweat, okay. tears, right? Um, um, but 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 Willie Lanier is a is a dominating linebacker, uh, and what's interesting is that the Chiefs, who get beat in in Super Bowl, I think two or three, uh, are looking to improve their defense after they get shellacked by the Packers 35 to 10. And so they draft in the second round, Jim Lynch and, uh, and they draft Willie Lanier. They draft him like three draft picks apart in the second round. Like Jim Lynch is drafted number 47, I think. And Lanier is drafted number 50. And what's crazy is that Jim Lynch was the most decorated kind of linebacker in college football. And one of the most decorated linebackers in college football history had won a national title at Notre Dame where he was keen captain. He won um, uh, the Maxwell award, which is the award for the best college football player. Um, and so here comes, here he is drafted and he's away at some bowl game for a week of foot of training camp. And while he's away, Willie Lanier is gets slotted in there at middle linebacker. Well, when Jim Lynch shows back up to preseason camp, he's at practice like two days and he's like, he goes to the coach and he's like, coach, I, I like to play outside linebacker because Willie Lanier had basically, you know, like have won the position, but he also realized that he was not as good as Willie Lanier. And I think that's a statement, right. To think about how good black college football was, right. But you know, that a guy who was the Maxwell award, one the best right. player in college football in 1966 is going to be like, you know what, my bad, I'm not ready. I can't compete with this guy from Morgan state. Right. Like that's just like a very interesting logic. And he goes over and 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 that move actually solidifies Kansas City's defense is one of the most dominating defenses uh, in NFL history. Right. You had Buck Buchanan on the D line. You had uh, Willie Lanier, Jim Lynch, a linebacker. You had Jim uh, 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 James Carter at uh, safety, who James Kearney at safety, who played quarterback at HBCU and then moved to safety. Right. Like this is how talented they were. Uh, and so this is a fantastic, like when we're, I remember looking at those things, those mm -hmm. videos, right. Going back to our, our sports Illustrated videos and not understanding any of this. And so the chiefs had this fantastic history. What's interesting is like, why haven't they been to the super bowl since? Right. 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 And I think, you know, and a lot of this is some of this is bad luck, right. They had some really good teams with Derek Thomas and, and, and Tony Gonzalez and Joe Montana. And I think some of it's also that the rest of the league mm -hmm. kind of caught up. 
right? That they had this inherent advantage that by the mid seventies closes up that other teams start to really partake in black colleges. We've talked about on this podcast before that the Raiders were by the mid seventies were drafting a number of black college players. Um, Yeah. And so I think that, and so I think that's an important way of thinking about like, why was this window? Why were they so good at one point early on? And then what has, what right. changed, right? Uh, that, uh, that, uh, that did not allow them to do it. And I think that the, the, this kind of, this hidden advantage that Lloyd Wells and, and being able to tap into this HBCU talent pool uh, and, and be aggressive in that pool and drafting players and bringing them in as free agents and signing them in this and giving them opportunities, provided them with a kind of inherent advantage that could not be replicated as desegregation kind of extended. Right. No. And that's, and that, that's the thing, right? Like this is the model. And, and I think the saints will follow and the saints will go NFL, but when the saints become part of the NFL, one of the first things they do is hire the black sports writer um, at the Louisiana Weekly to, to work for the team, right? To to get that uh, that that talent. Um, the other thing we mentioned too is is what that advantage is is only for a short period of time because integration comes too, right? And now all of a sudden, those players mm-hmm. that you might miss at the HBCUs or your or the other teams are going to miss because oh, it's just the HBCU. Well, now they're going to Notre Dame, right? Now they're going to, as we mentioned last yeah. week, we did the LSU thing. They're not. They're they're gonna eventually stop going to to to, to Southern. All right, they're gonna stop going to Prairie View, um, and so those 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 teams are gonna get decimated. And they'll instead of going Prairie View, they're going to you know they're going to Texas. You know they're going to A uh, and M. They're going to Houston, and you know someone like a, a McVeigh, a Willie, uh, a big Warren McVeigh, who's on that team, right? He's one of those first black. Uh, Texas players in early sixties mm-hmm. to stay home, but not go to a black school. He goes to Houston. Um, he's like a backup running back for that team. Mm-hmm. The other thing about Lanier, which is so important is that he's the first black middle linebacker, right? Just shows you yes. every HBCU team had a middle linebacker, right? All this talent, but that just shows you right. how they're thinking, right? <laughs> this, and if listeners, you're not kind of aware of this is, I know we, we, we spend a lot of attention talking about the quarterbacks, but the linebacker, middle linebacker, was in the same position. It's a thinking. It's seen as a thinking position. It's a leadership. It's the leader of the defense. And and the belief is on the one hand that black <clears throat> the black player didn't have the ability to think as as quick and as sharp as the white player, right? And also that white players mm-hmm. wouldn't um, necessarily look up to his leadership, right? At a, at a time when these right. teams would be mixed, or maybe you only had three or four black people on your defense that looks a little bit different when the head of the defense is black, right? So, so the chiefs being able to, to, to recognize talent and, and push past race is, is why, as you said, they had this, this nasty defense that makes it to the Super Bowl without Ernie Ladd, by the way, shout out to Ernie Ladd who retires the year before to, he's a bad knee injury, but another <laughs> grambling guy, but retires the year before to, to go full-time mm-hmm. wrestling with a bad, with a bad knee injury. He's one of the top wrestlers. Well, the top attraction is actually making more money in wrestling than he is in football. But the the other interesting thing before we move on to today about that Chiefs Super Bowl, you know, watching it on the NFL films, what they don't tell you is hey, that game's in New Orleans, and and New Orleans had to hold mm-hmm. its collective breath because it's like mm-hmm. its first major showcase post the AFL All Star Game that was in. New Orleans in 65 and all the black players, right? Boycott the game and has to go to Houston, but they all boycott it because racism in the city. So what happens before that Super Bowl? 
there's a city ordinance that says, look, you have to integrate. Look, 1970, right? <laughs> the, I, right. Uh, Civil Rights Act is in 1964, and there's a city ordinance being passed weeks before the Super Bowl telling mm-hmm. businesses that the time is like now. You got to get your stuff together and you'll still have white business owners like trying to defy this. Like, no, we're not going to do this. We have this mm-hmm. right. Even though the federal government's saying this, now the city's saying this and surprisingly, and, and luckily for new Orleans, cause I think the history of new Orleans sports would change, right? They're pumping all this money to the, to, to the Superdome. Uh, the history would change if there's another incident and there's no incident, right? Uh, players got to go wherever they wanted to go. And, and <clears throat> the chiefs come out on top, right. Of the uh, Minnesota Vikings, if I, if I'm correct. Um, so that's just one of those mm-hmm. things, one of those little history things that we don't get to see. We get to see this very black team, but we don't get to see like what's kind of bubbling on the surface. What, what potentially might happen um, because new Orleans still hadn't learned their lesson. Right, exactly. And I think there's an excellent point where you're, where you, I think you've talked about this before too, right? Like, is that the, you know, behind is the games being played at Tulane Stadium. And so there's this, there's this push to build a new stadium, right? And so this idea of new stadium building, right, which is a huge concept and, and really pushing, you know, even the desegregation of the NFL is very much tied to the stadium building and expansion out into the West Coast and where we're going to play these games, right? Um, and so we see this in Tampa, right? Um, and, and I talk a little bit about this that the, when the Tampa Bay, the, the city of Tampa Bay, Florida wants to build a stadium, it has to be desegregated, right? They have to let Florida and m play and they have to show that they are progressive racially in order to attract attention to the NFL, right? So this is all part of this, this what we think of this kind of Southern landscape of professional sports, right? Whether it's in Atlanta, uh, in Fulton County Stadium, uh, whether it's in New Orleans with the Saints, yeah. uh, obviously – Right. The Miami Dolphins in the Orange Bowl, this had already happened down there as well. So there's this whole kind of scheme in which uh, where where these southern cities want to be seen and taken serious as major cities like New York, like Chicago, uh, like Philadelphia. And sports was a vehicle to do that. But they also had to reject in many ways in order to do this, they had to reject segregation ways. And so it puts these interesting kind of tensions in Kansas City, the blackness of their team, the legacy of their activism uh, earlier in the city um, really puts, uh, you know, cities. It forces them into good behavior, at least for a weekend. (laughs) No, no, for sure. For sure. (laughs) Another thing about the dome and and same thing with the Astrodome. So the Superdome, Astrodome, you don't get those built without black votes. Right, you have to go to the because yes. black folks have the vote there, right? And and okay, you're gonna pass this right. this this bill or this bond, or whatever you do to build a stadium, and you got to convince the black voters that this is going to be good for them. Not only is it going to be integration, it's going to provide jobs, and so you'll see a lot of that information right. uh, throughout as the the Superdome gets built, right? Um, as the Astrodome gets built, it's an important part of like the black sports culture there and black voters there. Right. Um, because this is theirs. Um, that's how we, that's, this is literally how it gets done. Cause people don't want to spend all that money, those tax dollars on those things at that time. Now you're, you're kind of forced to do it. Um, but no, it's, it's one of those things that, that, you know, you, you don't get to see in the NFL films, right. Um, this kind of these underlining things yeah. that are going on, uh, with with race in the city, like the history of race in the city. And New Orleans, like I said before, is one of those cities that needed things to go right. And once it did went right, they were talking about, oh, we're going to have the Super Bowl every year here. Like in their mind, they didn't envision <laughs> right. it rotating. <laughs> right. They thought, oh, 
warm weather city we're getting every year because it's a party city right like um and and that's literally what they were saying in the press and that's not how it happens because yeah no not at all not at all i want to add one little point before we talk about the contemporary lineup thinking about this this kansas city defense right and and thinking about the segregation you pointed this positional segregation right we think about the quarterback as the most obvious position um but you know what made the the Chiefs slightly different from everyone else in this time in in, in 69 70 is that they had buck buchanan you know that each line each level of the defense had a captain right so the d line had a captain and so the captain of the defense of the defensive line was buck buchanan who at that point was like a six-year veteran um willie lanier was a starting middle linebacker so that made him captain of that of that unit and then jim kearney the safety position we always forget that the safety position used to be predominantly white as well because that was the captain of the secretary right and so they had a guy who played at lsu and they also had jim kearney who played at um at Prairie View, right, who played quarterback at Prairie View and had been it was now converted to safety, right? And so there's an interesting thing where the where the Chiefs, you know, trotted out three HBCU guys in the secondary, right? And and a guy from Johnny Robinson from LSU, right? And I think there's an interesting kind of dynamic at play that's happening here, right? Where they are recognizing that speed becomes as a valuable um, you know, a valuable kind of uh, talent in the league and then being able to cover speed. And some of this is tied to, as I talk about in my book, Bob Hayes changes the changes the defensive <laughs> yeah. calculus, right? That you just can't have. Because <laughs> you know it's like we gotta have somebody that can cover that guy, at least be in the in the <laughs> in the screen when he catches the ball, right? Um and so you see the advent and kind of creation of large numbers of kind of of, of perceptually like faster age, you know, faster um, players who play in defensive back to overdo this. And Kansas City kind of leans in on this. So I think that's an interesting kind of way to go back and think about it. But with that said, all right, so let's look at this con- this contemporary landscape, right? You, you you're the you're the champion of the black quarterback. And so we're rooting for the Chiefs, right? And so what does this mean in terms oh, of I'm asking oh you as this champion, what does this mean that, you know, yeah, now what does this mean if we think about you know, have we had a situation in where we had a H uh, HBCU, a black quarterback, and a black offensive coordinator in the Super Bowl? I don't, I don't think I'm gonna go say no, just because I don't think so, right? So if we list the black quarterbacks, uh, we go Doug Williams, uh, McNair. So the first two to play in the Super Bowl were were HBCU guys, right? And then, and then if my order is yeah. correct, you'll, we'll go McNabb. I want to say McNabb, Cap. And then Wilson, Wilson, Newton, and now Mahomes. I think I got everybody. Um, but none of those guys had black offensive coordinators. Now, Jim Caldwell was a, the offensive coordinator um, for the Colts and the, the Ravens, right? So when the Ravens won with Flacco. Okay. Um, and let's be clear. Okay. Denny Green and Randall Cunningham should have been in the Super Bowl that year that, that they had uh, – Randy Moss, his rookie year when they blew that game against the the Falcons, but no. And I think this is big. And I think as we get into Super Bowl week, right, where where now all the focus is on these guys, where it's media day and everything else, and mm-hmm. I think that's the 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 topic of the conversation. It, it's it's Eric Bieniemy. We'll get to to Patrick Mahomes as as a as a black gunslinger out there, just just throwing darts and and just throwing it wherever he would. Uh, he wants to, and and every time he throws it, you're like, ah, oh, it's a touchdown, even if it's like a two yards. But Eric B. Enemy, right? <laughs> like this is the story. Here's a guy who's done everything, right? Like that you would say that that 
that would push mm-hmm. put them in a position for for a head coach, right? Like as we mentioned before, like two of the OCs mm-hmm. for for Andy Reid are now head coaches. One won a Super Bowl, so he's like, "This is how football's a copycat league." So this is how it should work, and all of a sudden, right. it's not copycat league. And I think that's the story, right? Like, is this guy who who's going to be in charge of this electrifying offense? Is he going to have to literally wait another year mm-hmm. and, and do it again? Um, right? And and I and I and I yeah, no, and I just yeah, think it's question. you know he's look as some people said there's something in that past, but it's never. My thing on that is, look, it should be looked at, right? What happened at Colorado should be looked at. But it didn't stop anyone from hiring Vance Joseph, right? It didn't stop anybody from hiring Matt yeah. Patricia, right? So so, so for all of a sudden, mm. this to be something, and I know Joseph's a black, but this to be something, I, I, I just don't think, I just I just think Eric P. Enemy doesn't fit in what NFL owners see as this offensive guru. And very few black men have right it's dennis green right. it's jim caldwell yeah and i'm stuck there in the nfl right mm. and you have two black ocs uh so it's the enemy and and byron leftwich which is a tremendous story too um because he was like one of my favorite right. quarterbacks because he was like slinging it at the mat oh. uh and Marshall, yeah. he couldn't, couldn't and he move. couldn't move. He was like, he was like, he yeah, was like, he's like the <laughs> slowest black quarterback <laughs> like ever. But in like, I think at one point he says, like, look, <laughs> I'm slow for a black quarterback. Like, let's be clear, but not for a quarterback. Right? <laughs> well, I think this is interesting, right? I think this thing about Eric Bieniemy is is problematic, and I think we, you know, I think we gotta we have a pod in mind to talk about as. Maybe around the draft, I think a little bit about how this coaching cycle has gone again. But I think Eric Bieniemy is is interesting because Sean McVay got a head coaching job for for putting an above average offense right. together at the Washington Redskins. They they I think they made the playoffs. Maybe they made the playoffs that year. I don't know. They didn't beat anybody, right? Because because Kirk Cousins hadn't won a playoff game yeah, until this not, year, yeah. right? So like. Sean McVay is now literally was seen yes. as a genius with a, with an with an average Washington yes. Redskin offense. No, 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 it's like not, above it's, average. It was right? nothing like I gotta watch average. this. Yeah. Above, above average. Yeah, right. It's above average, right? Like it was nothing like oh my god, I gotta see them every week. And and the enemy has ran like the most like Patrick Mahomes. I mean, he threw for five thousand yards last year and fifty touchdowns. Like. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and so like that alone should have gotten you like a job at one of these teams that is terrible. Right. right? That's the whole point. Right. Like just, you know, like we, we want to replicate that. And I think that's interesting because I think that Eric Bieniemy is caught between this situation in which, you know, unlike any of these other coordinators, particularly white coordinators, right. He's not given any of the credit because Mahomes is seen as a natural, unbelievable, once-in-a-lifetime mm-hmm. arm talent right. kind of guy, right? And it's Andy Reid's offense. You understand? Like, and I think that there's something to be said about – and I think it's – you know, and I think – and this is not – I don't know enough about what Andy Reid has done, but I think at the end of the season, I, I would be mad if Andy Reid doesn't stand on – like use every opportunity to talk about yeah. why Eric yeah. Bieniemy. 
should have been the guy. That, no. right? Like should deserve right. the opportunity right. to have a head job. Because to me, because to me, that's his job, right? To get a guy a head. Like he's like he's done everything that you could ask him to do. Um, and for these dudes, you know, to go by and 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 not to say they won't be good coaches, and not to say, but you know, some franchises have been terrible at selecting coaches, and to not give this man a chance after, like, if you had Baker Mayfield, why would you not? Yeah, that's crazy. Well, yeah, I don't even know who they hired. Some guy, yeah, they hired some guy who wasn't even right, like you know what I mean, like the, the, the face of the uh, the the offensive coordinator. That's right? so a Gary Kubiak offensive coordinator was kind of running the show at the Vikings. And it's the same guy they, they wouldn't hire the year before right? because they wanted to hire the offensive right. line or whatever Freddie Kitchens was, right? And it's like, like come on, right? right. Like this this is like the enemy has studied under it. He's done his work. He's been, a you know, the head coach at Colorado. He didn't, I don't know, you know, how much time he got there. You know, he's, he's that's the thing. What sticks out to me, though, is, is what we talked about when we did that other um, ep on, on Willie Taggart. Is that you know, be enemy had to put in the work. I mean, he's literally been in football, like if you mm-hmm. count his college days since the early nineties, right? Grinding to get here. He was I remember from uh, Adrian Peterson's rookie year watching, you know, because I'm still a Viking fan, um, watching like one of those segments mm-hmm. and and it's Eric Bienemy as a running backs coach, right? Like that's the grind that he had to go. Mm-hmm. He had to go from college star. Right to to he's yeah good in the NFL but not great. No one remembers him to to I don't even know if he's good. I'm just being nice. I don't want to mess that up. To to the running backs coach right and works his way up to to college coach mm-hmm. and and now here he is working his way back and he can't even can't even land a job at and some of these franchises like why wouldn't you hire this guy like it doesn't it doesn't make sense your franchise is going nowhere uh, so. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, the simple answer is racism, right? Like the answer is racism, right? And I think that the other part of it is is that's frustrating, right? Is it's like every time you know you experience this all the time, you know, you teach your kids. It's like even if right. you do everything right, <laughs> you do twice as good, right? Like five thousand yards, fifty right. touchdowns right. is twice as good, right? <laughs> like nah. you, and you still don't yeah. get the opportunity, right? And I think that there's a and I think there's something to be said for that, and I and I think that's uber disappointing, and uh, and it doesn't mean he's going to be a good coach, right? Like I think that we're just talking about like like that all things being equal, like it, it's a no brainer to hire him, right? Like you know I think it's um, you know it's just it's a shame, and I think I think the same thing could be said for um, uh, Byron Leftwich, right? Like Byron Leftwich, I think you know this. This is a crazy season because Winston uh, James Winston 30, 30. Those 30 aren't Byron Leftwich's picks, though, right? James can't see. and he won't for some, all that right? money. Like, he won't. <laughs> but no, you're right. Like Leftwich is like he James is like put back to back like 400 or something like that yard games, right? Like something crazy and. And almost led the yeah. league, right? Five thousand yards, great yeah. throwing. Like, minus no, the the interceptions, James is you know you, you know the good with the bad, and and left which was there. Um, right. And what's interesting about those two, we get back on this again, <clears throat> is that what does it mean to be an offensive genius, and why can't the league recognize that yes. in a black? person right and i think i explained this to another reporter like that was the mm-hmm. power in deshaun watson just you know 
talking basic coverage is right for a lot of NFL people is basic coverage, but we had never, we, we don't get to see that. And, and, and it's not reported that he's like Peyton Manning or something like that. Just this person who's just a, you know, genius can do anything. And I think that's, what's important, right. About this hire. Like you hire these offensive guys and you label them a genius that changes things too. Right. And and how you're going to see other black Mm -hmm. people coming up, not only how you see them coming up, but who gets opportunities. Right, because yeah, because they're not right. getting the opportunities because I mean, yeah, you don't absolutely. you don't you don't see it like that. And and I and I was telling another reporter this um, that I was reading this Sports Illustrated article from a couple months ago. It's on the Washington football team, and it's you know it's the McVeighs, it's the person that wound up at Green Bay, Lafleur, the other person that winds up at Bengal, it's Shanahan, yeah. and they all were there at the same time, and they're all talking plays. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. There's not a black guy in that room. Like, there's not a black guy. There's black Absolutely. guys on the coaching staff, right? And they're the older guys. They're they're the guys who are probably just there, player personnel type stuff. But there was, right? There's nobody thinking coaching. about this guy gets a chance. Probably somebody. He's probably those guys have probably put in ten to fifteen years already, and you have these young twenty year old guys just drawing up plays, right? And and, and that's what's wrong with the league, right? Is that there's not enough mm-hmm. teams with the guts, right, to give guys a young guy a chance to say, you know what, you get a chance to learn. You, you know what, you get to be in that room, a room with, with McVeigh and and Shanahan and Lafleur and whoever that guy is. You could be in that room too because this is who we are as an organization. That's what Aaron's does, right, at Tampa Bay, right. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Byron Leftwich a chance. Mm. He gave him a chance at Arizona. Yeah. He had black coordinators at Arizona. He's gonna come back and have black coordinators at, at at Tampa Bay, right? That's how these things work, right? That's yeah. how you yeah. you know you you change the dynamics of the game um, is by giving them a legit shot. Yeah, but I also think there's this right. Like I think that there's a I think there's a like you know this is on the podcast that. We we got we got a nice amount of listeners and thank you to all those who listen. But you know we're not going to change the way NFL teams think here. But I think there's a competitive advantage in thinking going back about to your black a, uh, uh, HBCU stuff, right? Right. Yes, exactly. Right. Just as there was a competitive advantage in thinking about um, you know HBCU players, like why are we not thinking about black coaches, black offensive coaches as geniuses, right? Giving them like the support and opportunities and the chance to fail, right? Because I think there's something to be said that if, you know, my thinking is that anytime we we think that um, all the answers lie in one particular demographic, that means that there's a competitive <laughs> advantage. Yes. <laughs> it just yes. is, right? Like there just is, right? I mean, like even if we think about, for instance, um, the uh, New England Patriots have found tremendous success with the white wide receiver, right? In part because there's a competitive advantage, right? That they can get yeah, guys yeah, off the street. Yeah. There is. There just is, yes, right? Uh, like, so. we need a slot guy. Like, instead of over, like, how do we overpay? Rather than overpaying for this guy, we could get these guys lower. Like, if they were yeah. black, they'd probably be drafted a little higher, but they're drafted a little lower or they get cut from such a, you know what I mean? Like, there's all these circumstances that allow them to continue to find that. And I think that's just them recognizing a competitive advantage, right? And I think that there's a probably, I suspect that there might be a competitive advantage from, from black genius like to me if you were cultivating that like your chances are finding it right, because right, no one's looking right. for it 
So you're not like, it's not like we got to dig really deep, right? Like, you know, oh my gosh, who can do it? Like, I think there's an opportunity to do it, right? And I think this is at college and at the pro level, right? Like, not just thinking about head coaches, we're just thinking about play calling, right? Like, um, that we, you know, especially with this, the, we're really in this kind of one and a half generation of black quarterbacks, right? These guys who got the, who got chances to play quarterback at college, but maybe, maybe not in the pro. Like, like I don't know. Um, Oh, Antoine man. Randall switch. L, for instance, right? I don't know. In college. Oh, yeah. He's no, I mean, just say it. I know he had a switch, but, but I'm saying, so thinking about his professional experience, right? Like his he switch, I think, his senior year to, to play receiver or something five. like that, right? Or not? And then he played, he played pro, he played in the NFL as a slot guy, right? He played inside and outside. Like he has this interesting thing right. where he had learned all these different now, I re- positions. I remember him asking, right. I was watching one of those shows. And he's asking Michael Irvin before the draft for advice how to be a receiver. And Michael Irvin's like breaking down like how to come out to routes. So I was like, man, he had to do everything, man, just just to play because no one's going to give mm-hmm. him a shot. And I think there's some interesting thing. Like, so like to me, like, man, I would like cultivate him to be like, yo, how do we turn that experience? Like, Hans Ward is an excellent. He's on the TV and doing announcing, but he's another guy like who. Came out as was a quarterback initially. Come played a couple years, like two years as quarterback at Georgia, and then switched to wide receiver. But then just played this, like you know, played inside, played outside, played running black, played all these different kinds of positions. What does that do in terms of thinking about, you know, how do we open up a defense? Like there's guys who right. who because of this random experience that they had in switching positions, somehow why are we not? Right. Why is that a detriment? Whereas before it's like right. oh they got slash. to play quarterback. He should, he should be, be slash, you know, right? He's a backup. I mean, slash got you to the right? Super Bowl. <laughs> well, okay. Cordell Stewart, yeah, right, or even. I mean, like, you know, but like Gary Kubiak is somehow yeah. a genius. Jason Garrett gets uh, an opportunity yeah, to be called yeah. plays because they were a backup quarterback. Yeah. yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like, so, like, why is that right. experience somehow right. better than something else? Right. And I, and I think that there's a sense that there's a, comp- there could be a competitive advantage if you are willing to, to, to right. search for it, cultivate it, and grow it. Right. And, and the truth is, it'd still be, you know, because, it's devalued. No. It's actually cheap. Yeah, I mean that's that's all black. That's <laughs> literally how like the black signing bonuses and and baseball work too, right? Like, uh like in the sixties, you see like guys like getting like peanuts, right? And the white guy gets a lot, but but I was, you know what? Exactly. And one of the things I think this is a good point. We'll have to do Mahomes another time. Um, he's the greatest quarterback ever. But this is a I this is a good, I think analogy here or a story I'm, I'm tired i don't know what the right word to use but i have you know I, two guys in my class and both want to be football coaches and and one's a black athlete and one's um you know this he's just he's just a guy i don't think he's no athletic he probably listens to his show no i don't see him as an athlete but he's focused i'm gonna I'm be a head coach right and this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna get an internship mm-hmm. right here at, at the school and then i'm gonna go off and get a grad GA, right? Mm-hmm. And his mentality, the white guy, right? His mentality is, mm-hmm. I'm going to be a head coach. The black kid's mentality is, like, what do you do? Oh, man, I think I'm just going to be a running back coach. Wait a minute. Like, why aren't you thinking about being a, a head coach, right? How come someone hasn't come and tapped you mm. and said, oh, when you want to talk about being a he- head coach and you're just saying running back coach, right? You're not saying you want to be a, a let me back up. You're not saying you want to be a, a head coach. You're only saying a running back coach and nobody stopped you and said, wait a minute. Why don't you shoot for being a head coach? Like, why do you limit? And I think you limit yourself because mm-hmm. that's all you see. 
right? All you see is a bunch of black yes. running back coaches, right? Black wide receiver coaches. And that's it. There's nobody, you know, seeing this young 22-year-old kid and saying, wait a minute, the way you cut, right? The way you see things, the way you, you understand the game. You know what? Stick with this. You could be called, you could be called place. Now it'd be tough for him because to do that, you got to intern, you got to grind, you got to just be that guy cutting up tape and doing all this other stuff. And you don't have that kind of money. You know yeah. what I mean? You don't, you don't, you don't come from money. You, you got to work. Yeah. No, um, so there's, and I think on that, yeah. I think the NFL needs to do a, they have stuff out there. They need to do a lot better job of, of not only creating pipelines, but creating economic opportunities for these guys who, to, to, to make sure they get a seat at that table uh, with those geniuses, right? Those quote-unquote geniuses. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and I think that Bruce Arians deserves a special shout, like you said, because he's got, you know, he's got offensive coordinators, he's got defensive special okay. teams. Randall L. actually works for Tampa Bay uh, apparently as, as wide receiver coach. But, like, I think there's an excellent opportunity, right? Like, I think that's what, you know, it does take coaches to be like, oh, I'm gonna, this is going to be my staff, and this is what we're going to do, and we're going to try to win games with this group. And I think it's going to be an excellent opportunity. But being cognizant that, like, you know, that these guys are just as much a genius as these other guys are, (laughs) you know, and we just need to give them opportunities. Right. And I think that's, and I think that's part of the frustration to watch Eric B lead, you know, the, the most successful, one of the most successful offenses over the last two years and not even get, and you know, and be in for a few interviews, but not be like, yeah, he's signing. Right. This any is the guy you gotta have, right? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, is that one of like Lincoln Riley, right. like the I mean, guy who teams are waiting on? Scott. This is it. This yeah. is it. No one, no one says that about Eric Bieniemy, right? And we, and I think we know why. So, yeah, it, exactly. But uh, that's a this is a this is a yeah. just to our listeners, it's a little longer in part because of the Super Bowl and and we had to do some Kobe stuff at the beginning. But again, we'd like to say condolences to to Kobe's you know and Vanessa's family and 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 may they may God watch over them as All they right, continue I'm on these that note. Time. Peace, peace.